Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Bowlology Report. Oh, what a guest today. One of Australia's finest fast bowlers of all time. He's a commentator. He's a coach. To give a little bit more background on him, I've gone to the Channel 9 tour guide of 1984-85, and it says, genuine fast bowler who now heads the Australian attack and one of the few capable of returning West Indian fire with fire. Highly spirited but he has a short fuse. Australia's first fast bowling optometrist. It's a sight to unsettle Eddie Batsman. Jeff Lawson, thanks for joining us on the Bowlology Report. Uh, it's a pleasure, Flamel. Well, the Channel 9 guide was always uh, more directed to, towards hyperbole, so you know, <laughs> we'll, we'll take that report for what it's worth. I put it out to socials for some questions, and I actually um, put the your player profile on there. So there was some some questions. Uh, one was, "Did you own a yacht back in 1985?" A yacht, <laughs> mate. I don't, I don't even like the water. I live in a beach suburb, and I don't, don't go to the beach. So no, 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 no yacht. Not even a model. Because, Hen, it was linked to your favourite singer. It said Jackson Brown, Glenn Shorrock and Steely Dan. They felt like that was yacht music. <laughs> well, yeah, they're still my favourites. Um, I'm not sure. Jackson Brown, of course, his, his daughter came to live in Sydney, so he was a regular visitor to Sydney. You could go and watch him in, in concert or even at some of the local pubs, so that was handy. It's all pretty mellow music, isn't it, that, that, that particular group? So was that standard in the mid-'80s Aussie dressing rooms or did you have some some pop uh, players or some heavy metal guys? I think ACD was also very popular. Um, yeah. I know I like DC, but, but but for relaxing music, I didn't find ACDC that relaxing. But Australia had some great groups around that time. Um ICRs and NXS and, and a few others. Um, so they're all they're all pretty pretty popular. But I, I reckon the Aussie players tended to favour Aussie music. Yes. Um, through the 80s and the 90s. Yep, yep. Continued on through my era. What about favourite drink, Coca-Cola on the rocks? Now, I don't know yeah, if anyone like, knows because you're basically a teetotaler, aren't you? Well, I, I didn't drink at all when I played. Um, and, and most of that was due to I just didn't like the taste of any alcohol. Um, and, and the Coca-Cola uh, on the rocks after a hard day's toil was very refreshing. It also got Got your sugar levels back up nowadays. It's it's Coke Zero on the rock. <laughs> so, what about peer group pressure back then? What was it like starting off a big fast bowler and, and not drinking? What about guys like Dougie Walters? You know, how did they react to that? 
Well, I, I had the, the joy of playing with Doug back in the early 80s in his last sort of year of Shield career. In fact, in fact, my first test match, I think, was Doug's last test match. So, of course, they guys like Rod Marsh, Dennis Early, and, and the drinking culture was a big part of, of Australian cricket. But, oh, the guy never felt under any pressure. Um, we also remember that uh, New South Wales was sponsored by Tui's Brewery for 25 <laughs> years. So, and the guy, every player loved a beer after a day's play. And I, I think that's a good thing. I just didn't, didn't like it. So I, I had my Coke or an orange juice or I loved some water. But but to be honest, I'd never felt any The only pressure I felt, my very first test match in Brisbane, uh, we're at the bar after the first day's play and Rod Marsh was there with Ashley Mallett, Dennis Silly. And they said, oh, what are you drinking, Henry? I said, oh, Coke. I said, oh, I've got to have a Coke, got to have a beer. So Rod Marsh bought me a beer, sat on the bar for 45 minutes. I said, I'm not drinking it, mate. And he said, really, honestly, I said, no, no, I'll have an orange juice or a Coke. So for the rest of that season, I did not have to buy a drink because Rod reckoned if you drank orange juice or Coke, that didn't count in the shower. <laughs> Little did he know that they were charging exactly the same price for the Coke and the orange juice as they were for the beer. Uh, but really, I, no, they, they gave me no no pressure to, to, to drink and do whatever. I was just, you know, it's, it's Henry's... You know, he's got to be an optometrist. He must have a, a few ideas what to do and not, what not to do. But but a bit of that drinking culture pressure, I think, thinks a bit overdone. Yeah, last one on this profile. It says, last book read, Australia, a social and political history. Um, was that shared around the dressing rooms with Rodney Hogg and Lenny Pascoe and co? I offered it. I offered it around. Um, Peter Sleep didn't want to read it either. <laughs> Well, I think it's still I'm sitting here at my desk at home, and I think it's still sitting on the shelf there. They're, they're pretty important books, I think. Putting, um, I'm just reading uh, Shul Berry's uh, Delight of Cricket, and you know, it, it, it puts the whole game in perspective, as as that book did back then. It put our sport in perspective to our country and where it came from, where it was going, and it, its relevance in society. And uh, you know, I love, I love, I have this this period, these periods where I'll read nonfiction for for several months and I'll read, read fiction and, and mix it up. But, but yeah, I think, I think our sport's one of the one of the most important ones on the planet. And I don't say that lightly and reading the history and its perspective and its place is, is pretty important. Where, where does, where does this type of book um, sit in the history of Australian literature? Henry, the Jeff Lawson oh, well, story. It, oh yeah. Um, probably uh, underneath the shelf, Holding up the shelf so it's level, so it's actually it holds up your, your book cupboard. I think, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, look, I was proud of writing because I wrote it myself, you know, yeah. and I, I did it on the old, the old word perfect uh, word processor you know, on a on a laptop. And I, but yeah, I, I when I go, I, I don't go back. A lot of people still have a copy, and I, I you couldn't believe it. I still sign the occasional copy of it because <laughs> there have been twenty cents in the remainder store at you know at the Salvation Army, and. Yeah, look, uh, many years, I think I wrote that the year I retired. So, yeah, if I, I was to write it again, it'd, it'd certainly be from a di- different perspective. So, you know, it's uh, it's a it's an autobiography. It's written by someone who couldn't write very well. Yeah, but it's interesting because you've always been forthright. I've gone back and had a look at it in the last few days there. You know, some what I like about a recently retired player is that the opinions uh, are so fresh. Yeah, and I wrote it actually the last year I played. So it was actually published virtually straight after I finished playing. So 
Oh yeah, you, you've got some things to say, Flem. You may as well may as well say. I mean, now nowadays people just do it on social media. We we had to wait for an opportunity to, to publish a book and all of the difficulty that that takes. Nowadays people just throw it out there and in, on instant gratification and instant information with social media. So from that point of view, I think that the modern player, the contemporary player, still has a fair few opinions, but they they get them out in 140 characters. Yeah, which is a skill in itself. Back on the socials, Hen, a lot of chat about your actual bowling action. It was unique. You were athletic run-up. You had the drag. You know, with the back foot rule in the 60s, we saw fast bowlers drag and they can shorten the pitch. Was it from watching um, fast bowlers the generation before yours or or were you always a dragger? No, I think it just happened. Maybe the coaches I had, um, they had seen that generation. I mean, the Ray Lindballs, et cetera, the Gordon Rawks who used to drag five or six feet, and, and it was the back foot rule, more or less. So, yeah. yeah, you could get closer. You should be able to do that today, folks. You should be able to get as close as you possibly can to let the ball go. Um, the batsman changed the rule to the front foot rule. Um, but I, I, seriously, when I was in the backyard or the school playground, and we, we used to play morning and, and afternoon at, at uh, Wagga Public, we used to play cricket incessantly. I just I thought I was Dennis Lilly. I thought I was imitating Dennis Lilly's action, but obviously not. Uh, maybe his attitude to a degree. But uh, I can remember, you know, wearing the toes out of my Dunlop volleys and then my Puma Sheffields by bowling on the concrete wickets in Wagga. We used to play our match most of the time, and I would wear a hole in my right toe every game. My mum used to go berserk. You know, I can't keep on. <laughs> You know, so my, my dad was a, owned a service station. So his solution was he got an old uh, tyre and he used to cut bits out of the tyre, old bits of black rubber, and then he vulcanised it to the front of my right shoe. And there on the on the concrete pitch, there'd be a big black drag mark, which is which four to five feet long, and that, that saved me multiple pairs of shoes. So through, through economic uh, necessity, um, I d- developed a few different toe caps, but well, Mom Hen, was, should, instead of being an optometrist, should you have been a podiatrist? Well, I haven't played for 30 years and my toenails still haven't grown back. Um, so, yeah, and, you know, from the damage our feet go through, uh, it's, it's a little bit understated, the value of fast bowlers' footwear and their feet and how important it is to get those yeah. right and, the, and the, the damage our toes go through. And, and guys, I mean, I, I, I do a lot. You know, with, with Mitch Stark and Josh Hayeswood and these sort of guys come out these days, and um, whatever they're wearing for footwear is certainly better for their toes. But they've still got toe issues. People are still cutting holes in the fronts of their boots and and uh, trying to get over that that massive bruised big toe, which was incredibly painful. It's more painful than any other injury you're going to get. So, um, yeah, good good foot and looking after your feet. That, that's one of the keys to the game. And you did influence a, a generation as well. You know, I, I was someone, Merv, uh, as well, were cutting out for that big toe because, you know, to be able, have to put the needle through that black toenail and, and release the blood pressure, then you generally, the, the nail would die, wouldn't it? So then you're bowling uh, with, with on, a, on a toe that's trying to grow the toenail back. It was unbelievably painful, but... You know, actually cutting uh, the toe. Yes, you went through your boots, but it relieved the pain. Yeah, yeah. I was, it was. 
I can still remember. Actually, the first person I saw do it, Dennis Lilly used to have these kangaroo skin shoes, cricket shoes made by Hope Sweeney in Melbourne. And they were beautiful pieces of footwear. They're, they're almost too good to play cricket in. And Dennis used to use them, Jeff Thompson, Lenny Pascoe, uh, and I got a pair. I couldn't bowl them. They were just, just too painful on my feet. But Dennis used to get the scalpel and put one cut down the middle of his, his right toe in these beautiful kangaroo skin boots, and that helped him. And so I sort of followed on that I needed to put a big hole there, and I used to have an aluminium toe splint on my front toe. And, <laughs> you know, oh, God. And then it would stick in the end of your foot and you'd get infected. And I remember one day at practice, I couldn't be bothered putting the whole aluminium toe splint on, so I just left it off and bowled with a big hole in the front of my boot. And there was 20% less pain straight away. And that yeah. so it all involved having a big hole in the front of your boot. And as I say, guys are still doing it today. And, and you know, as, as you know, you mentioned Merv and these guys who are very hard on their feet. It, it, it does make a significant difference. If you've got excessive pain going through your right foot as you're about to let the ball go, you know, it's not a pleasant occupation. No. Really. You, you do whatever you've got to do. And what about the, the rest of your action, though? You know, you had a big stride, a big high front leg. You know, my memories, I, I think reading your book, you were mainly an in-swing bowler, but you went through a period uh, probably when you were the spearhead of Australia bowling out-swingers. Can you talk about the involvement of, of your action? Yeah, look, when, when I was going, you know, I got coach side on, okay? So, you know, you, you got side on and you bowled out-swing. And, and I, did, I had a... A good action for that. It wasn't a mixed action. It was a standard action. Um, but then I used to get a bit of hyperextension where I would. Le- I thought I was bowling more and more side on, and I wasn't. And you'd lose your outswinger because you're letting it go p- past the perpendicular. And you'd also bring on your stress fractures through your hyperextension. And so, yeah, you'd end up bowling in swingers a lot. Uh, and then I sort of sorted that out and got rid of the hyperextension. And well, wow, the outswinger came back. And I sort of coach that a bit these days when people lose their outswinger about it's all about posture. It's not necessarily about where you get your front shoulder, et cetera. You know, you've got to have the right posture and you don't want to have hyperextension because it brings it, you know, it's bad for your stress fractures, plus you won't be able to bowl outswing. Um, so it's, it's a combination of two things. So I, I sort of figured that out myself with the help of a bit of observation. No, no video cameras in those days, unfortunately. Um, and finally got back to, to, to getting the outswinger going. I can remember a day when we were playing Pakistan in a test match at Sydney and Rod Marsh was, was terrific as a keeper for me because he was watching your release point all the time and he said, oh, you're, you're bowling off cutters, you're bowling off cutters, you're trying to bowl outswing. I said, yeah, I'm trying, mate, I'm trying. Well, you know, he said, well, you're, you're cutting underneath it. And that's because I was getting too, past, too far past the perpendicular. And so I went out in the nets that night and tried to figure out something and, got it right to a degree and came back the next day and bowled outswing. I thought, wow, this is exciting stuff again and, and got a few wickets uh, past the outside edge rather than the inside edge. So it, it was a bit of a trial and, and error in our day with, with a little bit of help from observation, not necessarily from bowling coaches, but from people like your wicketkeeper who was watching yeah. what, what you did. So it, it evolves all the time. And then as we played more, one-day internationals, more white ball cricket. You, you had to bowl more slower balls and use the crease and bowl different lengths. So the game forced you to evolve what you were doing. If you wanted to be successful and stay in the game, you had to keep making changes. What about the mental, tactical side of the game? Were you a goal setter? Did you set goals to, for, for a, a summer or a test series? And then microing it, did you actually have a pre-ball routine? <laughs> 
you know, something that you had to say to yourself before each ball to to get a win? Well, well, first of all, no, I didn't. I did not set goals, and you know, I've got to get thirty wickets this series, or you know, I want to. I want to get. 40 wickets in a shield, so no, none of that. It was every, it was game by game. Come out, play the game, do the best you can. I mean, the goal was to bowl every ball the best you could, bowl every over, every spell um, with whatever you had at the time. So no no long-term goals from that matter. We all we all know that bowl. You can bowl a great day and get none for, and you can bowl some absolute <laughs> tripe and get five for. So you, you, you've got to understand how you're getting your wickets. If you bowl well, more often you're going to get more wickets over a longer period of time. So I think understanding... How that evolves, how that happens, you know, how you are getting wickets. You know, if you, someone's chipping at half volley to, to mid wicket, well, it's a wicket. Yeah, we'll celebrate, but you're not going to get a lot of people out that way. That 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 sort of thinking. So yeah, no long no long term goals. Um, ball by ball, I think I was a pretty good visualizer um, before visualization became a, a you know a a, a textbook or written method. You know, I would have visualised that I wanted to bowl an outswing of this ball or a slow ball or an inswinger. So I'd actually go through that in my mind. Generally on my way back on my run up. Um, so you just, you would have bowled the ball in your mind before you bowled it. That was a little automatic exercise. Um, and then, yeah, the regular thing you did was try to hit your bowling mark at the same time every every ball. That was the, that was the key to getting it down the other end. Yeah, but that's all pretty good. The visualization of the ball that you want to do, and and make sure you you're hitting the mark. You 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 obviously obviously visualize what what the result was going to be. What about your fast bowling cartel teammates? I'll, I'll say a few names and thoughts on them. Obviously, number one's Dennis Illy. Oh yeah, I mean to me, still the greatest. I know other people's are statistically better, but you know I grew up you know idolizing Dennis, watching him in on black and white TV down in Wagga, and and you know. Just hoping I could get to a game and watch him bowl, which I eventually did. You know, being from Wagga, I could I could get to the MCG on a train, or I could get to Sydney on a train, and, and did that for a couple of test series in a row when I was in high school. Though that was very very fortunate, but you know, just to watch Dennis's energy and you know his his furious enthusiasm for the game and getting people out. I mean, that's what I wanted to be. That's what I did in the backyard with my tennis ball. Uh, bowling with my best mate Steve Kittle, or I did it in in junior cricket, and then and then I, I got to play with it, which was just astonishing. And Dennis was very good to me that first test in Brisbane way back when. Uh, he wasn't the kind of guy who would would go out of his way to come and tell you something, but if you ask him, he would give you all the information he had, and he really encouraged me. And he, he and Rod Marsh in particular, I know in that first test they were they were terrific. They wanted me to be the best I could be, obviously for the team and for Australia to do well. But, you know, to, to play with Dennis and uh, we did it to 80-81 um, through to uh, when he finished. I played in his last test match in 83-4. So to see his skills, to see his, his mental application and, and the pain he went through to, to get through the end of his career, uh, one of my favourite stories is we were playing a, a one-dayer in Perth. This is when the time when the one-dayers were played in between the test matches, so it was all mixed up. You didn't have separate series. And we're playing a, a, a one-dayer over there, and we, we practised at the Wacker, and um, he bowled for, I don't know, 45 minutes, and then he said, oh, I've got to go. I've got to go and uh, got to go and uh, get a bit of surgery done. He said, you what? You, we got... What he was doing, <laughs> about, about every six weeks, he would go and get all the bone fragments taken out of his left knee because it was just bone on bone. 
So he would just go and have this procedure where they would suck the bone fragments out and he would he came back to the ground the next day with all the bone fragments in a little bottle. I was like, you're kidding wow. me. So that was that. And I later thought, I sort of moved to that much later on when he was bowling with bone on bone. But you just think if, if you can go through that to play, well, I'm not making any excuses, you know, get a bit sore and a few aches and pains. I didn't know that one. And it's interesting, you know, it was more the the, the mental side of things that, that influenced, you know, for me growing up with the Vicks rooming with Merv and, and playing with Tony Dottermade, you know, I think it was more uh, the attitude and the standards and the passion and the resilience that, that left a big impression on younger players like myself and Paul Rifle. Uh, what about Tomo, Jeff Thompson? Oh, well, a, a unique figure, a unique person, but also a unique bowler. Once again, I, you know, I got on that that uh, train and went down to Melbourne Boxing Day '75, I think it was. So last year of high school, Australia versus West Indies, and Tomo bowling. I was sitting in the top of Bay 13 with a whole bunch of us from Wagga went down, and, you know, some decent cricketers, but we're only kids. And watching Jeff Thompson bowl to Lawrence Rowe, just seeing the absolute pace. I remember, I think Lawrence Rowe nicked a half volley off of Tomo, and Ian Chappell caught it going over his head at first slip. It was a front foot nick. And you think, gee, we want to play the game at a high level. We'll never get anywhere near that. That's just absolutely <laughs> ridiculous. Um, and Tomo bowling at that pace off that run-up, I mean, Jasper Boomer must be channeling Tomo these days to be able to bowl that fast with no run-up. But yeah, Tomo, the slingshot, big, strong and powerful, um, and that pace was just ridiculous. And then, I, once again, I got to play with, with, with Tomo, and he was an interesting character. He's, a, he's, a, he's an interesting guy. Um, but when it came to bowling, you know, just he wanted the ball all the time. And towards yeah, that mid-'80s, when he finished, I think, 85 Tour of England, you know, he was well past his best, and the body had, had certainly uh, – uh, suffered the ravages of, of being a fast bowler, particularly when you bowl 160, and he did. He bowled 160. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, why don't we coach people to bowl like Tomo? It's just it's we should do. You know, the the slingshot, the 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 back foot facing back towards the side screen. Half the guys no. these days have foot facing at 180 degrees, but is a unique figure. Uh, no, no, one back, of the legendary bowls. no back problems for Tomo, was there? I know, commentating somewhere, and he said, Oh, Henry, I've got a bad back. I said, No, no wonder, Tomo, you bowl 160. He said, No, 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 never had a bad back when I bowl. He said, I, I, I was landscaping, I was, I was lifting these 100k <laughs> rocks the other day, I got a bad back, <laughs> but never, he said, He never had a sore back when he bowled. So, yeah, maybe there's something in that slingshot. Uh, the characters continue, Rodney Hogg. Rodney Malcolm Hogg, one of my favourites, one of my all-time favourite teammates and, and bowlers. Uh, you know, he's got got a thousand great quotes, Hoggy. You know, I, I played that test match in, in Perth with him when he got hit on the return crease by Michael Holding on the pads and a ricochet on the stars. <laughs> and I was in the dressing room when he came in and talked about make a, a incredibly serious event comical. And that was that was just just wonderful stuff. But a great bowler. Yeah. He made bowl out swing it. You know, at, at pace, and when we were talking, you know, when it was right, it was up, it had to be around 150 when it was right. And he had that great series when we went 78 9 against England. Um, I should remember the stats because he used to repeat them ad nauseum when it was 40, oh, 41 at uh, 12.5 or whatever it was. <laughs> that was his nickname for a while. Uh, where's 41 at 12.5? Yeah. But 
Uh, great guy, very, very dry sense of humour, but he understood what was going on around him, Rodney. He, uh, some people took him a bit for granted, but um, I mean, I played with him also post um, when, when Wally Yallop was captain and that, that uh, World Series time when he was playing for the establishment teams. So I played with him after that. And uh, what about your, your best mate, the big wit, Mike Whitney? Oh, well, yeah, it's, uh, we, we had a lengthy conversation last week in lockdown. We, we need to catch up, but we, we're not allowed at the moment. But he only lives five minutes away from me at the moment. Um, yeah, I mean, to open the bowling with him at New South Wales for, for many, many years, to have his you know, left hand of variety. I mean, Whit was one of those guys who was so raw when he started. Um, and he just existed and was successful on raw talent. Bowl fast, get it down the other end as quick as you can. Don't really care what's happening with the seam. Um, someone else set the field for me, please. I'm just going to bowl it. I'll bowl it all day for you. You know, you know, and he would. I mean, I mean, he play only played cricket because he, he got hurt playing rugby league. He would have been contracted to South City as a rugby league player. Big and quick. I mean, you know, massively, uh, very quick across the ground, good runner, big size, loved his rugby league, but unfortunately he did a knee injury and said, oh, well, you, you know, you have to play something else. So he took up cricket. And he just got better and better. As, as the years went on, his, I reckon his best year was was his last year, and he famously got that seven for. People said he couldn't swing it in, and he certainly could. He bowled great reverse on the wicket, and the ball went reverse all the time. So we had spin and reverse, left hander and a right hander. A uh, great teammate, great inside the dressing room. Wonderful after hours, although I didn't spend that much time with him after hours. But uh, one of the great team men you'll ever meet, and such a loyal guy. And and for those those who know himself to a team or uh, an individual, he's going to stick forever. So yeah, still, still one of my very very closest mates, and we we occasionally get together and reminisce about just how good we were. Flint, you're one of the few fast bowling captain. Um, a question: Could Pat Cummins captain Australia? I think he can. Um, Australian cricket's interesting at the moment, isn't it? We've we've had this situation where. The succession planning for the captaincy has been zero. And so you get the events of Cape Town leading to Tim Payne being brought back. And he's done a pretty good job as a leader. But, you know, he's playing now 37 or 38. So, you know, time's about up there. Um, the only one thing that, that Pat's got going against him is that he's a bowler. and They, they don't pick bowlers as captains. I mean, Ray Lindwall captain one test match back in 56, I think, 57, uh, and that's that's been it. But they just don't go for bowlers because they think they're less resilient, more likely to get injured, and, and there's no continuity. But but, uh, but Kamo's got the intellect, he's got the experience, and he's also one of the best players at the moment. One of the big things in Pat's uh, favour is that during his, his injury odyssey, where he had three sets of stress fractures and had to come back from those, he went and often did his degree. Uh, I think it was University of Western Sydney. I think he got a business degree. So he, he went through a, a totally different lifestyle from being a professional sports person and a, and a professional cricketer. He was, he was a student and he studied and he did well and he's got another part of his life behind him. So he's got a bit more life experience than perhaps a few others have. Through no fault of their own, we're in, in the era of professional cricket. From the time you're 17, you, you put on that trail. Uh, but but Camo's had other... Other things to do, and as I say, he's got got a tertiary education. He's a terrific cricketer. He's a he's a delightful young man. He's very welcome for a fast bowler. He's, he keeps things under control, which which, which is kind of nice. Yeah. Um, 
Uh, yeah, look, I think he has got the attributes to be the captain, and I, I've got a feeling it's going to happen sooner rather than later. Um, and there's not many other candidates who are going to get picked in that team uh, on a regular basis who have got captain's experience. So, yeah, look, everything points towards Pat Cummins getting the job. Would it make it easier, Hen, if, if you split the roles? Can he be a test um, captain and 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 not do it in the in the white ball? I, I mean, I, I read in your book that you found one day cricket really tough. Absolutely, and, and I should have mentioned that. I think that, um, but particularly with so much cricket on these days, uh, that I certainly have come out as the test captain. At the moment, he's playing all three forms, and I don't know if that's sustainable. Um, particularly international T20 cricket. I think we've got some other candidates there. We've got some, some pretty good T20 bowlers. Um, but I think we need a, a separate captain certainly for T20 cricket for a number of reasons. Uh, I think expertise and, and very the specialty you need to be a T20 captain these days, uh, I think we need a, a separate captain there. He could do white ball and test matches, but but let's, let's start with test matches first and, and maybe go to 50 over cricket after that. But it is, I mean, so I, I found... Uh, yeah, I found shield cricket, you know, you had time to think and you also had some very good players around you to, to help with your decision-making and take some pressure off you. Uh, white ball cricket, you know, figuring out who's bowled what overs, changing the field every ball, and then thinking about your game. And I must admit, sometimes when I was bowling in, in 50 over cricket, and I, I, I forgot to think about the field because <laughs> uh, now it's not my job, it's the captain. Oh, geez, you're the captain. All right. Uh, but when I played white ball cricket, I had War, Taylor, etc. <laughs> it made it a bit easier because they, they could say, hey, Henry, what's going on here? We need someone over there or someone over there or whatever. So you need good people around you. And I, I think uh, you know, Camo can do 50 over cricket as long as he's got those other good people around him. But, yeah, yeah T20's become such a specialist format these days. Like we, we need, it's almost a completely different team and certainly a different captain. So I take it you weren't surprised with Mark Taylor and Steve Waugh's success as Australian captains then? No, not really. I mean, once again, I had the great luxury of playing in some, some New South Wales side in the 80s that, that had some, some geniuses in it. And when I was captain, I would often have Mark Taylor at first slip and Steve Waugh at second. And their instructions were, if you see something, just say it. In fact, you're even allowed to move the field if you want to because I had so much trust in what they would provide. And two great cricket brains, different people, you know, Stephen a bit more combative and a bit more chatty on the field, uh, Tub just doing his thing and and being a bit more of an intellectual captain. So that's nice. It's nice having different personalities and then, you know, having the, the opening bowler as the captain brings something else. But those two guys in particular, I mean, we had Steve Rickson as the keeper, then Phil Emery, you know, some pretty good cricket brains around us. Um so that helps. It's not just about the captain. And I think that's what maybe Tim Payne at the moment needs to consider. You Make sure you use everybody around you, not, not just rely on yourself to do everything. And maybe the coach needs to do that as well. He, he needs to use his, his resources a little bit better. But, uh, yeah, we're very fortunate to have, to have Taylor and War and, and, and Mark War, of course, who would make a contribution whether you ask for it or not, which, which was always kind of nice. But yeah, it's a good cricket brains there. Australia takes the ashes. But victory is the least that men play cricket for. They play it for a host of reasons, ill-defined and hard to seek. 
And Ham, we've got the Ashes coming up this summer. Um, you played in in five, which is unbelievable. Just focusing on a couple, you know, how significant individually for you, 1982-83, first test, you're bowling as a change bowler. There's an injury to Terry Alderman, who tackles a spectator, does his shoulder. Dennis does his knee, and, and you're the spearhead, and you just grew from there. Yeah, it was interesting times, wasn't it? I mean... Now, Clem, why are you chasing that ball, that skinhead with the Union Jack vest on, mate? Can you just let him go? Uh, no, Were no, you watching it on the field? Oh, Did you notice I was, it? I was, I was the next person there. Oh, you know, I was sort of jogging. I said, I want, I was telling Terry, don't chase that guy. And then when he, when he actually tackled him, my first, there was so much, a scream of pain came up. I thought the bloke must have knifed him. Seriously. Terry goes down, his shoulder injury. Dennis, his, knee, his knees were already on the way out, but but badly. And so 81-2, I, I had a really good shield season leading into 82-83. And, um, you know, I was just about at my boss. But I was pretty quick and, and knew where they were going and had a lot of confidence in my own game. When, when Dennis went down in particular, because Terry was the the, the end of the wind swing bowler, and he, he, but he bowled with decent pace, that, that they just looked at me to do it and, you know, Got a bit lucky. What about there's no handing over as the spearhead of the Australian attack? Was it something that you thought about? Yeah, I mean, I mean, not so much. I mean, in those days, whoever came along was going to be the next Dennis Lilly because Dennis was at the end of his career, and that's a pretty big mantle to wear. I mean, <laughs> fortunately, no, you know, you know, I'd had time in dressing rooms with Dennis, and you know, it was all about getting the job. But you didn't worry about the media. You just just got on with the job, and you know. How are we going to get a wicket this session? You know, how are we going to win this game? So there was a lot of short-term thinking, which I think was a big advantage, to be honest, that that we, we had our minds in, in the present rather than looking forward at all. Um, yeah, look, I don't I don't think of, you know, being called the next Dennis Lilly, I didn't read that too often. And I thought it was rubbish because nobody was the next Dennis Lilly. I mean, he, he was he was the man and he was, he was the great and was always going to be such as that. Um, so, yeah, I just, yeah. Okay, I got the new ball. That's nice. I got the new ball. <laughs> might be able to swing a couple here. Might be able to get a few early wickets. So, and I got the bowl downwind. So, I was a shocking into-the-wind bowler. I was hopeless. Yeah. So, I was just pleased to get, and I, when I told Mocker and, and Hoggy when we got together, I said, I don't really care what you do, but I'm bowling downwind. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> so, that's too hard bowling into the wind. Yeah, tell me about it. Now, what about the 1989 Ashes series? You know, you went through so many um, injury and selection worries and then you, you get back in um, after two unbelievable years for New South Wales and then you're playing against the West Indies, take wickets, and then you have to face Ambrose. Yeah, they're uh, they're interesting times, aren't they? I mean, you know, if you're going to face Ambrose at Perth, you better wear your helmet with a grill on it. That'd be That'd be the first thing, wouldn't it? I mean, if you're supposed to be a smart fast bowler, that'd be the start of it. You're facing a guy on the quickest wicket in the world, one of the quickest bowlers bowling downwind on a bouncy deck. Yeah, put your lid on, idiot. Um, so I didn't quite do that. Um, so, so did you have helmets with grills before that, or oh, you just never had? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, there were grills. <laughs> well, the, 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 the short story is, I mean, I got I got picked back in that test match. I, I got, I think I got five for not many in the tour game against the West Indies. Mind you, there's SCG, bit of reverse swing. So New South Wales played quite well against the Windies. And, and I didn't get picked in the first test, uh, which 
you know, I probably should have on form. I remember Viv, we walked off the field on the third day and I just bowled, I think, five or six maidens in a row to Viv when he was on in, his, in the 90s. We had to make his 100th 100. And we walked off the field and Viv didn't say much, came past me because he was at the, the southern end of the SCG and said, uh, also, I know you're not in Brisbane, but I'll be seeing you in Perth. So that, that was a big rap from the world. He thought I was going to be in the next test match. But, yeah, I mean, and then I, I was packing my kit to go to Perth. And in those days, you had those hard coffins, you know, the, you've, not the soft bags everyone's got today. And I couldn't fit my helmet in. You know, it just obviously wouldn't fold down. I had all my gear in and extra pair of boots, et cetera, et cetera. And so oh, I'll just borrow my helmet when I get there. And I borrowed Craig McDermott's helmet. And all he had was the side earpieces on it. Um, so I didn't have a grill. But I had a grill on the one I normally used to wear. But oh, I hadn't been hit. No. I mean, me, me spot the error. Um, but I hadn't been hit. I mean, I I got hit as the night watchman against England in Adelaide in 82-3, playing a hook shot at one minute to six. And I got hit, <laughs> hit which is just beefy bowling with a second-year ball, me trying to hook it on the night watchman. Yeah, you know, got hit in the ear. But I'd never been hit. I mean, I always seemed to get out of the way. You know, I got dark and sway and might look too good, but I never got hit. But that one, yeah. Yeah, was pretty quick and hit a crack and came back and, and no chance of getting out of the way. But that's that's but you what. Got, but been... you got back. You got back, and which was significant after all the uh, back troubles and ankle problems. And then eighty nine Ashes. You know what a crowning um, glory for you in in Ashes yeah. series. Yeah, I mean that's that's will forever remain memorable. You know, obviously, I mean just just move Terry and I was personally just the three of us. You know, going playing every test match and every, each one having success at different times. Obviously, Clem, you know, another forty odd wickets. Uh, Merv and I backing up with sort of thirty each. Um, that that was a great time. It was you know, the dream series because nothing really went wrong for us from the first test. You know, we get sent in and we get six hundred. You know, Tub gets a hundred, Stephen gets a hundred, AB smashes them, um, and, and we win in a bit of a surprise late on day five and, and, and the whole world turns around and we, we, we win that series pretty easily. And um, yeah, that, that were great times. Great, great summer in England. Weather was, was hot. Um, we would have won six nil if it hadn't rained. They had two thunderstorms in, in Edgbaston and Dover. we probably went six blot. Uh, England in disarray. That's lovely. They had half a, half a team go off the Rebel tour. So they, they were having a few problems that we had in 85 because we, we lost a lot of players out of the 85 Ashes Tour. Uh, but, yeah, and, and we're sponsored by Forex. You know, it doesn't get any better than that, Clint. <laughs> and how, how big was it? You know, were you, were you big on the baggy green? Were you big on the song? No, I think the, the actual – I mean, I, I always used to wear a white floppy because, you know, pale skin and uh, all, all the skin cancer issues. So I was, I was nearly always a broad brim hat guy. And that, that was growing up in Wagga. I was, I was the nerdy kid with the grey nylon hat on, you know, <laughs> in the playground because I used to hate getting sunburned. And, you know, even even these days, I'm a regular visitor to the dermatologist and had a few melanoma issues because of just being out in the sun. So I wasn't a big baggy green cap wearer or a baggy blue. You always used to wear a... a uh, Sun Hat playing for New South Wales as well. But I must admit, the other guys, you know, the batsmen in particular, um, yeah, they were very proud of, of sticking on the baggy green. Steve War elevated that to another level altogether. Um, I've still got, 
uh, I've got a couple of baggy greens that I got for different tours, um, and one of them's in the, the draw by the bed in a pride of place. But it's also it's, it's pristine. I mean, I think I wore it two or three <laughs> times. In so that, that, that sort of changed, you know, wearing it for the first session, the first test. We, we didn't do that sort of stuff. Um, but certainly, the you know, the, the whole batting order used to wear their, their baggy greens to, 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 bat, to field in and uh, do whatever. So I think that the legend had been there. It was developing through that time. I think Steve Waugh took it to another level. What about uh, an interesting time to play? You played 10 tests in a row against the mighty West Indies that might have been the greatest team ever put on the park. And you performed well, but some teammates didn't. You know, it destroyed careers. What are your recollections of playing against the Windies at their peak? Yeah, I mean, the the 10 tests in a row, but I mean, I really get annoyed when people say, oh, the 80s, Australia were terrible during the 80s. Well, we won the World Cup. We won the Ashes twice. Uh, We won a few other series, but we played the West Indies every summer just about. They invited the West Indies out. To Australia all the time. Oh man, and it, it, I call it brutal cricket. It, you know, there, there was no real bouncer limits, even though the intimidatory bowling law existed. It didn't get interpreted too too well. Um, so you could bowl almost bowl as many bounces as you like, and the wind, Windies bowled uh, a, a lot of them, and they bowled them with quality. It wasn't just quantity. Uh, they just had that ever seemingly ever never ending list of fast bowlers uh, of the best the world's ever seen ever. You know, from Randy Roberts through Marshall Holding Garner, on through to Walsh and Ambrose and all the guys like Sylvester Clark and Wayne Daniel and, you know, Winston Davis and a million in between. So you're always up against uh, the very best bowling fast, particularly on our, our hard wickets. And, yeah, some guys had their careers ended and they were very, very good players. We had some, some very good bats against the best crickets ever had to offer. And there was only going to be one result. We, we had we had a couple of wins during that time, and they were great wins. And our we win on the at the SCG on a bit of a turner there, and and we spun them out. Murray Bennett and, and Dutchie Holland bowled well, and we bowled our slow balls and reverse swing, and, and our batsman did did a great job. Uh, you know, it was, was as I say, brutal cricket. It was, it was, people don't understand that form of cricket now that there's bouncer bouncer rules, and also there doesn't seem to be that many guys bowling one fifty. There's, there's a lot more balls bowled than 135 to 140, but it doesn't seem to be uh, guys bowling extremely quick anymore for, for a number of reasons, and, and that's that's another discussion in itself. But uh, the, the windies of that era, well, you know, he had Garner at six foot ten at one end coming over the top of the side screen, bowling. He didn't look like he bowled quick, but he, he bowled high 140s, and he had Malcolm Marshall at you know five foot eight, skidding them into you at about 148 at the other end, and that made it even doubly difficult so as a as a tail ender i found it impossible uh, our, our batsmen found it very difficult but but not because they didn't have talent it's just that the the windies were so good during that period what about bowling to them hen you know was sir Viv the, the best of them but you, you need to get a couple of wickets to get him in first <laughs> yeah granny Greenwich and haynes first you know two of the best ever I'm not sure if they still hold the record as the, the best average opening partnership in the history of Test cricket. And they're, they're there or thereabouts, so they're not the best. So those two first, um, and they were good because um, not only did they have great attacking games, but they had great defensive games. So your best ball, they had great defensive techniques against, and if you bowl slightly over-pitched or slightly wide, they, they smash it away. So they had both things going for them, yeah. And then, you know, Clive Lloyd, 
the early 80s, you know, Richie Richardson, Larry Gomes. Oh, I bowled to Larry Gomes. He was such an annoying player to bowl to because he, everything on off stop and outside went behind square leg. You couldn't get him out. Um, plus, Viv, then Jeff Dujon, oh. who started started life as a, as a top-order batsman. He debuted in 80-81 at the MCG against us, and then he was at number seven, and yet he was a, a quality quality batsman. And then, you know, Marshall could bat, Garner could bat, Holden could bat. So he had that top six. Yeah, we're talking about arguably the, the best cricket side of all time. And you, you throw in the mix some of those Aussie sides from late late 90s, early 2000s, but, you know, that, that side had all the bases covered apart from spin, but they didn't bother with spin, you know. Ah. Just pick fast bowlers. Don't worry about it. Roger Harper would bowl the odd over when they picked him. And I, I read in your book, though, one out of the blue, though, was your mate Wayne Flipper Phillips played probably the best innings that you saw against him in that 84 tour. Yeah. And I, I, I just recently someone asked me the same question, what's the best innings you've, you've seen? And it, it, uh, that one just springs to the front of your mind because – a number of factors, but uh, the fact he was against some of the greatest bowlers have ever bowled a cricket ball at Barbados on their home patch of turf, and Flipper just took it to him. Um, and in those days when cricket bats didn't hit that many sixes, it, to hit Marshall over backward point for six was, was an incredible feat. I mean, you know, it, it deserved a standing ovation. He only got six, not 120. He would have standing ovation and Garner. Uh, hitting him over midweek, not backward square leg hooking, but pulling him over that standard square leg. Um, he hit all their bowlers for six, and he just he just dominated them. And I've never seen that before or since that an attack of that quality could actually be dominated. And you know, it's still easily the best attacking innings I've ever seen against a quality attack. I mean, we we got four hundred and something. We still got beat. <laughs> and obviously, it was a tour too that. If AB, you know, wasn't a generational player for the Aussies and then within, you know, six months after that, Kim Hughes had resigned. I mean, how, how important was, was Alan Border throughout your period? Oh, uh, just immense. I mean, you talk about that 84 tour, uh, you know, just, you know, the, the epitome of courage and guts, but also talent. And it, you, can have, you can have courage to stand up to fast bowling, but you've got to have the, the skills to negotiate and score runs as well. Uh, I mean, the, the, the 98 not out and the 100 not out at Trinidad, uh, where he and he and Clem Orleman, I think it was 110 minutes they batted for the last wicket. And when we started that game, that was on a wet wicket. Dino uh, made his debut. We were rooming together, and he didn't know he was making his debut till, till oh. 10 minutes before the loss. And the wicket was wet. You could stick your thumb in the wicket, and we played, and we lost the toss, and we faced Garner Marshall holding on a wetty. Um, and, and AB got 98 not out, then 100 not out um, to, to save the test match. So we started that series with two draws, which, which was enormous. But, you know, I saw him get 250s at, at Lahore in 82. Um, I mean, all his batting through the, through the 80s was, was just, you know. As, I mean, as a leader, he just led by example. You know, he wasn't great on oratory. Um, he wasn't great on, on tactics even. Um but he just led by example, and, and you, you'd, you'd follow him uh, out of the trenches over the top any time. Yeah, just just magnificent. 
What a legend. Overnight, saw the great Matty Hayden taking a specialist role with the Pakistan cricket team. Now, you coach the Pakistan cricket team. Have you got some tips uh, for the big fella? Yeah, look, I, I just saw that announcement this morning. And, you know, I went, you and I have been involved in coaching for a long time. And and, and we understand that, that coaching is an evolutionary process and what you learn about it, how do you want to deliver your message. I, I'm, I'm quite surprised that, that, that Pakistan would – Take a coach who's got no experience. I'm not sure what he's what he's been doing, but you know, he did, he never played much T20 cricket, and he hasn't any experience as a coach. So that's the challenge in itself. You've got to get T20. You've got to get the detail right. Um, okay. I know he's got Vernon Philander with him, and we know Vernon's. You know he's bowling. You know you wouldn't want to face if him and Terry Allman together. You never score a run <laughs> at either end. Um, but in red, red Red Bull cricket, yeah, yeah, Red Bull cricket. Well, White Ball, everyone scores, mate. You just hit the good length balls for six. Um, but so yeah, look, I'm I'm fascinated by that appointment. I, I know Ramesh Rajar is the new president or the chairman of Pakistan Cricket, and I know Ramesh pretty well. Uh, he'll have to play a political game in in that particular role. But I'm, I'm yeah, I'm surprised slash shocked that. But you like, you you loved your time there though, Henry involved. Oh yeah, yeah, and 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 one of the people who's been replaced as a coach was Misbar Al Haq, and who who was just brilliant when I was there. He was already a senior player who hadn't been recognised so much, but, you know, a brilliant person, a great manager, understood all formats of the game, almost got us to a World Cup win. Uh, we were, you know, a couple of runs short. Of, if he's, he's a scoop shot off the last over, goes two foot high, we win, Pakistan win the World Cup, and I'm still living there now. Um, but the people there were fantastic. Uh, you've got to embrace the culture. Um, and I was living there on and on and off a lot, so Matthew doesn't have to do that. They're just going to um, the UAE for the for the World Cup, so he won't spend any time in Pakistan. Um, so he won't won't have to have to do that. But I really embraced my time huh? in the country with the people, with the cricketers. I, I just found them brilliant. I found the the, the general population, the man in the street, uh, so hospitable and so welcoming. Um, and of course, cricket. I think cricket's more of a religion in Pakistan than it is in India, and that's quite saying something. Um, but it, it is the sport that, that sustains the nation. So uh, if Pakistan can win this T20 World Cup, and they, they must have a bit of a chance. Mm. They've got pretty good raw talent there. Um, Matthew Hayden could become a, uh, a Sufi saint back in Pakistan if they win that. If they lose, <laughs> they, they could be burning effigies in the streets of Karachi. <laughs> Uh, and just finish up with some current ones. How highly do you rate the the, the quicks in the Australian uh, Hazelwood, Cummins, Stark, and Pattinson? Oh yeah, they're 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 four of the best I think we've ever had as a group. Um, you know, a big tall. You know, having a lefty who bowls what what Starkers does is fantastic. Josh, gee, how good's he been um, in all formats of the game? We know how good Camo is and and Pato. He gets a run when, he, when someone's missing, and he's and he's as good as anybody. <laughs> so I think I think that four um, is probably as good as Australia's had at any one time. You know, probably apart from Hog, Rackerman, you know, Alderman, etc. But but, uh, but yeah, no, that four, and they're all aren't they big blokes? You know, they're big, um, they all bowl good wheels. They're all smart cricketers. You know, that's what you got to be. Uh, you know, I think they, they really think through what, what they do and their approach to batting and their preparation. So, yeah, they, 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 the current four uh, are as good as I think we've ever had, arguably, and uh, that's why I'm 
really looking forward to the Ashes. Hopefully, it'll be on that we can have a you know just a just a magnificent summer out here with sort of COVID moving aside, and we hope you get crowds back. And you know, we've had some wonderful cricket in India, in England, India, England series. Um, I'd, be, I'd love yeah. that to be transferred to an Ashes series. It'd be, be wonderful. And then you were always strong. Um for a players association throughout your career. No doubt the players are looked after, you know, a lot better these days. If you were CEO of Cricket Australia, what would be a couple of things that you would look to implement in that job? Yeah, look, it's a good, it's a good question. I mean, firstly, the players are incredibly fortunate that, that they've had a players association, that, you know, a strong one that, uh, that understands their needs and goes into bat for them. We had to go and negotiate our own stuff. In our day, and you know, you, you played for match payments, and you were dominated by a board that, that weren't particularly generous. So yeah, yeah. Good luck to the, the contemporary player who has has their own association. That's, that's a wonderful thing. Um, you know, my view of, of, of what Nick Hotley has to do at the moment. I, I, I think cricket's become almost a bureaucracy. I'm seeing it happening happen a bit in New South Wales with appointing more middle management and, and less coaches and less on the ground cricket people. And it looks like Cricket Australia are doing the same. Their, their most recent reorganisation of their high-performance department, it looks looks almost bizarre. You know, you've got to look at what your core business is, uh, how you're treating your, your cricket organisations and your cricket players. And I, I, I think we're drifting into to being a, a, a big uh, a corporate body rather than and a body that looks like it. So you you got to know know the know did a bit at, at the board level too. Not enough people who who actually know about the game of cricket. And I noticed some, noticed some high performance appointments where uh, I, I would argue that these people don't know much about cricket. They might be professionals in one area or another, but you got to understand the game and the history of the game and, and how it's de- how it's developed and how yeah. each state works. And and you got to understand the game. And, Anyway, that's a bit of a bit of a rant, Flem. But uh, yeah, no, no, it wasn't. It was succinct as well. But you know, I think we just need uh, you know some real clear philosophy, uh, pathways, administration, real focus on the cricket side of things. Yeah, I mean, I would argue that, that currently in, in the high performance departments at every state, um, no one's had cricket or coaching experience. So that's not not a big start. <laughs> there you go. That's what you got. Yeah. Um, last one uh, on the cricket side of things, Justin Langer uh, has been under the pump. Not so much about Langer himself, but do, do you think we can have a full-time Australian coach or do you, do you think it has to be split up into red and, and white ball or even test 50 over and T20, backing up what you said before, how uh, specific T20 cricket is played? Yeah, I think... It, the one major factor that's come out of the recent sort of Langer controversy, I mean, obviously the players aren't happy, but um, it is that with the three formats of the game taking out so much time, and, and let's face it, the 20 over cricket and test cricket, they're, they're different beasts. You know, they're not even in the same sale yard, to be honest, that that we need different people in charge of those. And, you know, the, the T20 World Cup, to me, is a classic example where we should have a, a specialist T20 coach and he has his staff. Uh, and he goes off and prepares for it. Um, so that yeah. would be the take out of the, of the current controversy. You, you do need different people for different situations. Um, whether you need a different test coach to 50 over coach, I think that depends on the individuals you nominate to take those jobs because it's not just about the job description. It's about the people who are doing those jobs. 
Um, you know, if you can imagine if we had a, a particular coach for just for the Ashes, right? You're the coach. You've got to, got to win these test matches. How you go about it? Okay, that's a very succinct job. Do you then have another coach who comes in for you know a one-day series during the summer as well? That, that presents difficulties, but it might work. But it only works if you've got the right people. And that's what, as they say, good management's about appointing good people. And, mate, thanks a lot for the, the catch-up today. On social media, when I put your any questions, there was a common theme too. that they, 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 I want you to finish with your JVC ad and your catchphrase <laughs> out of that. <laughs> well, JVC, uh, stick it up your nose, take it anywhere, video camera recorder. I think that's the Billy Birmingham version. Um, did I say Batsman's Weaknesses? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> mate, that JVC equipment, which I got in 1983, I've only just thrown out last year. That's how good it was. It was still working. So Batsman had stuff. weaknesses, but not JVC. Ah, no, as, as, as Mervyn once said to me when we were discussing promotional endorsement deals, of which he was doing some nonsense, I think he said, Hen, wank, wank, in the bank. <laughs> I think that's a good way to finish there. Hen, thanks a lot for the chat. Good luck for the summer. Pleasure, mate. Same to you. Look, I'm looking forward to summer with some crowds and some, some terrific cricket. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Did I say Bestman's weaknesses?